You're listening to sermon audio from Grace Mosaic, a congregation of the Grace DC Network in Northeast DC. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org. Well, my uh, uh, confession to you this morning, my wife knows this well, Uh, she knows lots of things I can confess to you well. I'm a bit of a technology junkie. Uh, I got a little bit of an addiction to uh, technology. I, I, you know, uh, and that technology junkiness addiction has a particular form. Uh, It uh, comes in the form of a particular corporation that uh, has a piece of fruit with a bite taken out of it as its primary symbol. Yes, it's true. Uh, It's on my wrist. It's in my pocket, it is on this pulpit, it is on my desk at home. (laughs) Um, And you know, they are, you know, they're they're good, they're good. (laughs) They're good. They're good at creating what I call the the organized uh, creation of dissatisfaction. You know, I'll watch the keynote address in the fall and look and say, man, that's look, man, I need that feature. My life is going to be so much better if I can have that particular feature on this new device. I don't want it on the old one. I I need it on the new one. Then a little voice in my head, it might be the Lord, says, you can't justify spending that kind of money for that device because you already have one that works fine. And I feel sometimes like Abraham negotiating with the Lord to try and save his nephew Lot from Sodom. Lord, you know, what if I just trade in the iPhone 12 Pro uh, for the iPhone 14 Pro, not the Pro Max? (laughs) You know, in a tongue-in-cheek way, I could call them the evil empire because they are so good at encouraging my idolatry. They are so good at making addicts. But you know, right, that is the first step in the road to, to recovery, right, in addictions, is to admit that you have a problem. And this is not to make light of the reality of addictions, uh, because it is a very serious matter. But here's the thing. The addiction that every human being shares is the addiction to sin. That is an addiction that that leads us to search and strain for, for ultimate pleasure in everything but God. An addiction that that leads me to search and strain for that with a a disordered preoccupation with myself. You were to read the 13th 13th chapter of of Hosea, you would see how Israel's uh, addiction to her sin exploded in an idolatry that led to her destruction. And I'm grateful that Hosea's message didn't end in chapter 13 with the message of of gloom and doom and destruction and devastation. Hosea ends his book and his message by showing them and us the road to recovery. 
Make no mistake about it, God specializes in reaching down deep into the inside to heal and renew addicts. The question for us this morning is, can you see your addiction? You see your addiction. This last chapter of Hosea is given to us in a sandwich structure. You've got two slices of bread in verses 1 to 3 in verse 9. You have a, a call at the beginning in those first three verses, and you have a call at the end in verse number 9. And the meat in the middle, verses 4 to 8, is the, the promise of God. There's a call to confession and repentance in Verses 1 to 3, a promise of healing and restoration in verses 4 to 8, and another call to, to wisdom and discernment in verse 9 as Hosea's last word. And my prayer for us this morning is that we would hear and respond to God's call and to his promise. Three R's for us in this message. First, a call to repentance, a call to repentance. Secondly, uh, a, a promise. We see a, a promise of restoration. And then lastly, a call to, to recognize the truth, uh, uh, repentance and restoration and recognition. Hosea says in verse 1, Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you stumbled by your iniquity. This is, this is a call to repentance. He says, y'all need to see clearly that you've stumbled. And, and why have you stumbled? You've stumbled because uh, of your iniquity. Uh, iniquity is a word that is repeated over and over and over again in the book of Hosea. The city of Bethel in Israel, which means house of God, Hosea renames it in his book, he renames it Beth Aven, which means house of iniquity. He said to them back in verse 5 of chapter 5, the pride of Israel testifies to his face, Israel and Ephraim will stumble in their iniquity. At the end of chapter 6, in the beginning of chapter 7, the Lord says through Hosea, when I restore the fortunes of my people, when I heal the uh, Israel, then the iniquity of Ephraim will be exposed and the wickedness of Samaria, for they practice falsehood while the thief breaks in, gangs attack in the streets. Before restoration would come, the Lord would shine a light, he says, on the ugliness of their iniquity. They wouldn't be able to find healing until we, they were confronted with how desperately sick they were. And Hosea has been specific about their sin. He, he wasn't generic at all. He, he said they practice falsehood. They are thieves. They love gang violence. They have no conscience. They rejoice over evil. They rejoice over lying. They commit adultery. They are alcoholics. They are mockers. They are treacherous. They are out of control. They are ignorant. They refuse to repent. They lack sense. They are traitors. They are full of idolatry. And that list is just from chapter 7. 
Over the course of his prophetic ministry, Hosea has been calling the people to repent, to recognize their sin, and to turn to the Lord. Come, he said to them in chapter 6 and verse 1, let us return to the Lord for he tore us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. And the people's response throughout has been, no, we refuse to repent. So his last word is to reissue the call. It's to reissue the call to expose the fact that they have stumbled. Here in verse 1, he calls the people to a complete repentance, not giving God lip service. And he does it a little differently than he has done it in other parts of the book. And I love how he does it. He actually leads the people in a corporate confession of sin and repentance. He says to them in verse 2, take with you words. That is, in your return to the Lord your God, take these words with you. This is what you ought to say to the Lord. Here's my translation of what he says in verses 2 and following. He says, here's what you say to the Lord. Lord, you take away every iniquity and receive what is good. So we vow our lips as bulls. Assyria will not save us. We will not ride on horses. And we will not say our God again to the work of our hands. With you, the orphan finds mercy. He dictates to them what they are to say. He puts the words of confession in their mouths. This is what you ought to say. And listen, right? You should be, if you've been at this church any length of time, seeing some connection to what we do every Sunday in our worship service here at Grace Mosaic. You should be seeing some connection to what you experience in daily worship through the daily prayer project. But wait a minute, pastor. Ain't that cheating? Like, doesn't it have to be genuine? To, 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 uh, doesn't it have to be my own words that I make up for it to be genuine? Don't I got to come up with my own things to say? Doesn't that confession have to be from the heart? Of course, of course, genuine repentance has to be from the heart and cannot simply be mere words that we say. But notice these two things with me. First, sometimes we need help. Sometimes we don't know what to say. Sometimes we need help in identifying what we ought to say in our confession. Hosea is helping the people identify the specifics of their sin. He can help them because he knows them. He knows his community, and that fact connects to this second point. This is a call to corporate confession. This is a call, listen, this is a call for them to be a confessing people. I might, I might and I do privately confess and individually confess my sins to the Lord, but the Lord is interested in creating a community of confessors. Hosea has shown, he's shown Israel that they become a people who are defined by, adul by adultery and idolatry. 
And he is now calling them to become a people who are defined by confession and repentance. That, y'all, is still the call. What the Lord Jesus Christ creates in his church are communities that are defined by confession and repentance. The church of our Lord is not to be defined by seeking prestige and power and position. It is to be defined by seeking the lower place, by becoming known as a community committed to confession and repentance. So you will normally find, you will normally find in the Bible plural pronouns when it comes to this. In this confession, Hosea tells Israel to say, we vow our lips. <laughs> Assyria will not save us. We will not ride on horses. We will not say our God to the work of our hands. The Apostle John will come centuries later to say to the church in 1 John 1 verses 8 and 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We say we have no sin. John says the truth isn't in us. The one who cleanses and forgives is singular, the Lord. Those who confess and repent and receive forgiveness are plural, the people of God. What did, what did Israel put their stock in? They had put their stock in the fact that they were chosen by God, that they were the elect of God. They, they operated with a pride and an arrogance in their election instead of a humility. Well, well, Christians can do the same thing. Jesus says to us, he says to his disciples in John 15 and verse 16, you didn't choose me, I chose you. If we realize, listen, if we realize how jacked up we really are, if we realize how messed up we really are, being chosen by Christ should result in a deep, deep humility and ongoing gratitude that overflows into an ongoing life of confessing and repenting. And that's why we take the time to do it every Sunday. And when we do it, when we did it this morning, our desire is that they're not simply words we repeat to get on with the next part of the service, but that the Spirit of God has, through the Word of God, exposed the sin and idolatry of our hearts, and we come to God corporately knowing that he hears and forgives. That's, the price, that's precisely the content of Hosea's prayer. He begins with confessing that the Lord is forgiving, you take away all iniquity, right? Let the Lord know that you know he accepts what's good. <laughs> that is, he accepts confession from the heart, so let him know that we, we offer, we offer, we vow our, our lips, uh, the sacrifice of our lips as bulls, and in so doing, we will turn away from seeking security and salvation in anyone but you. That's what this prayer is about. When they say Assyria will not save us, tell the Lord you know that. 
The, the evidence of that is they will no longer send envoys out to Assyria to pay tribute and make treaties and become their subjects. We will reject our idolatry, Lord. We will not call the works of our hands our God anymore. We will not give divine status to anything in creation uh, uh, apart from giving you our, our full worship. And he ends his words of his prayer with words that imply we will not boast. We will not boast in our status as the people of God. We are orphans and not worthy to be called children, but we rejoice, Lord, in the fact that with you the orphan finds mercy. We don't see an amen <laughs> at the end of Hosea's prayer of confession in verse 3, but we might be tempted to say amen and go home rejoicing, but, but we can't do that yet because it gets better. There is a word of assurance that, that comes after his confession. There's a word of promise that, that follows, and it comes directly from God himself. There's a shift in verse 4 in the first person speaking the Lord is, is now speaking in verse 4, and he's speaking a word of restoration. I will heal their apostasy. I'm going to heal their backsliding. I'm going to heal their weariness. I'm going to heal their rebelliousness. Here is the meat of the chapter, God's promise of restoration. The Lord had stated the problem back in chapter 5 in verse 13. He said there, he said, when Ephraim sees his sickness and Judah his wounds, Ephraim goes to Assyria and appeals to the great king, but he's not able to heal you, nor is he able to cure you of your wound. They thought they could find their healing and their cure in Assyria, and Hosea directs them to confess, Assyria can't save us, and the Lord responds and says, I know, but I can. I am the Lord your healer. I will heal you. You are sick. You have a sickness that nobody can heal but me. That's part of what makes the promise of restoration so phenomenal. There's a call to return, but they can't return unless the Lord acts. The Lord says, I will love them freely, for my anger has turned away from them. Look, right, they used to, they used to say, you know, I was born in the, in, the, in the latter part of the 1960s, around the time of the hippie movement. You know, they talked about free love. Real free love ain't got nothing to do with hippies. <laughs> this is real free love. Free love is God's gracious love that he lavishes on undeserving sick people like you and me. This book is being wrapped up with a reminder of the Lord's promise back in chapter 2 and verse 14, back when Hosea's 
marriage to his unfaithful wife, Gomer, was still front and center in the book, serving as a metaphor for God's relationship with Israel. And the Lord promised back in chapter 2 and verse 14, I myself, he said, am going to allure her, talking about his wayward people. I will lead her in the wilderness, and I will speak to her heart. The Lord says, I'm going to act. Restoration cannot happen unless I act, and I'm going to do it with my free love. And it's got to be free because we can't earn it. It has to be free because there's nothing in us, in our corruption, that makes us deserving of it. And if we do not grasp our sickness, if we do not grasp the reality of our addiction, the Lord talking about loving people freely doesn't make any sense. It's a problem that Jesus is dealing with in the gospel in places like Matthew chapter 9 when he calls Levi the the tax collector, a, a man of ill repute to, to follow him. And, and Levi becomes a disciple and has Jesus over to his house where other people whose reputations are just as bad as his are invited. And Jesus is, he's chilling with these people. He's, he's reclining at table, uh, the Bible says, and they're enjoying a meal of fellowship together. And the Pharisees, uh, the leaders of the people who do not understand God's free love, say to Jesus' disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus hears their complaint and he says to them in Matthew chapter 9, verses 12 and 13, when, when Jesus heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician. But those who are sick, go and learn what this means he said i desire mercy and not sacrifice for i came to call the righteous and not sinners uh, i'm sorry i came not to call the righteous but sinners Jesus responds to them by quoting from the book of Hosea, chapter 6 and verse 6 i desire mercy and not sacrifice i'm not here to call the righteous I'm here to call sinners to repentance, and Jesus is saying, you got to recognize, you need to know that that's all y'all. Of course, the Pharisees had missed the implication of the words of places like Psalm 14 and 53 that declare no one does good, not even one. It missed their own sickness. And Jesus comes and confirms God's promise of restoration and healing and love that we see in Hosea chapter 14. And we ought not miss the fact, we ought not miss the fact that what is included in this promise of restoration is nothing short of the fullness of the kingdom of God. The fullness of, of abundance and love and, and radiance and glory. How do we know? Look at how Hosea or the Lord describes it through Hosea in verses 5 to 7 of our text. I will be like the dew to Israel. 
He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His roots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive and his fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return to dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. This is a picture of abundant provision. I'm not no gardener like Pastor Joel, you know. Uh, I don't do no pruning. I don't, I don't know how to do all of that stuff. I, I, will, I will be blessed by the, if he's helpful, you know, in, uh, by the fruit of his strawberry plant, uh, if he wants to give me a blessing. But I don't know how to do all of that. But look, they would have understood the picture without the the dew of the morning in their land, the agricultural season would be cut short. Although the, the dew burns away with the heat of the sun, the daily morning mist over the ground was necessary for agriculture throughout most of the year. The, this promise is a, is a picture of, a, of, of beauty and abundance and, and provision. The sickly, rebellious people will be healed and they will blossom like the lily. They'll be smelling good. They, they'll be dwelling under the shadow of the Lord. God is making his people beautiful. He's providing for them. He's protecting them. This is the outworking of God's free love for his people. It's the type of love that beautifies us from the inside out. It's the type of love that Jesus Christ has for his church. You remember what the Apostle Paul says to, to husbands in Ephesians 5? Uh, don't, don't focus first on what, what the husbands are supposed to do in loving their wives. When he says, husbands, love your wives. Focus on that as Christ loves the church. And what did he do, Paul says, and gave himself up for her. Why? That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Why? So that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. That is abundance and glory and position and provision and radiance. Hosea is saying that's what it's like in the kingdom of God. The promise of healing and restoration is a promise to clean us up, to bind us to himself and to one another forever. In Hosea chapter 14, the Lord uses the riches richest agricultural terminology to describe it, and then he wraps up that promise with one more word of assurance in verse 8. <laughs> one more word of assurance. He says, oh, Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? Oh, Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like an evergreen uh, cypress. From me comes your fruit. That's a rhetorical question. What have I to do with idols? 
The sense of the question, it looks back to the beginning of their relationship with the Lord to the present time. And he's asking them, what have I ever had to do with idols? And the answer is nothing. They're supposed to know that. Your fruit, your provision, it never came from idols. Everything you had, it never came from an idol. The Lord said, it always came from me. It always had, and it always will. Apostle Paul asks a similar rhetorical question to the church, to the Corinthian church. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 7, he says to them, he says, what do you have that you did not receive? What do you have that you did not receive? It's another rhetorical question, but he answers it. He says, if you received it, why do you boast as if you didn't receive it? Why do you live as if you, the things that you have, whether it's plentiful or a lot, came solely from your own labors and efforts? Why are you not acknowledging that's idolatry? Why are you not acknowledging in your heart that it's me who gives you your fruit? What this should have done for Israel and what it should do for us is keep us assured in the reality of God's promise. Remember, listen, <laughs> look, this promise is being made in the middle of a desperate and, des and dire situation for the nation. Uh, the nation, their nation is going to be overrun by the Assyrians. Their once prosperous economy is now in shambles. Everything is falling apart. People are going to die in warfare. The Lord had said in the last chapter, Samaria is going to bear her guilt because she's rebelled against her God. They're going to fall by the sword. Their little ones shall be dashed in pieces and their pregnant women ripped open. And here comes a promise of love and dew and beauty and flourishing and protection and abundance while everything around them is saying the opposite. The Lord is saying, I never had anything to do with idols. I still have nothing to do with idols. You let your material prosperity drive you into false worship. The promise is sure, so do not let that the loss of your prosperity drive you into idolatry either. Your prosperity, he's saying, your prosperity drove you to idolatry. It drove you there. And now it's all going away. Do not let the loss of that prosperity drive you into idolatry either. God's promise of love to those who repent and turn to him is sure, no matter what the circumstances look like. First, slice of bread on this road to recovery sandwich is a call to repentance, the meat. In the middle is the assurance of God's promise to those who repent. The final slice of bread from Hosea is a call to recognize the truth of what he's saying. In verse number nine, he says, who is wise? Who's wise? Let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them, for the ways of the Lord are right, and the righteous live by them, but the rebellious stumble by them. He 
wraps up the entire book with a wisdom saying, with a proverb. <laughs> in uh, chapter 13, in verse 13, he said, he said, Hosea said that Ephraim was an unwise son. Why was he an unwise son? Hosea said, because he did not recognize his opportunity to repent and be born into a new life with God. They were saying, no thanks, we're not interested in repentance and restoration on God's term. And so Hosea's last word to them is, don't be no fool. Don't be a fool. Do not no longer be unwise children. I'm calling for you all to have wisdom and discernment in response to the things that I've written. When he says, let the wise understand these things, let the discerning know them, that the, these things are the entirety of his message, the whole of his book. Everything from his jacked up marriage to Gomer and the pain that there was in dealing with an unfaithful wife, addicted to a life of prostitution, how he redeemed her and paid money to, to buy back his own wife, and instead of treating her like she was worthless, recommitted himself to her. Hosea's call is letting us know that we need wisdom and the discernment that comes from God in, in order to make the connection that is not just about them, it's about us. It's a picture of our rebellion and the lengths to which God has gone to buy us back, to redeem us. We need the wisdom that comes from God to see clearly that this message is about the cross of Jesus Christ. That this message is about the cross. It is about God's dissatisfaction to leave you in your rebellion. You might be running, but God is not satisfied to leave you running. He is a pursuer. The lengths to which he would go the price he was willing to pay, the death of the Son of God, so that you and I could receive the promise of getting beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning and sorrow. And I love, I love his last word. Recognize that the Lord's ways are right. That is, the way of the Lord is right and smooth and straight. The righteous live by them. The rebellious stumble by them. Well, who are the righteous? The righteous are those who respond to the call to repent. The rebellious are those who reject the call to confess your sin and repent. The rebellious are those who think that Jesus wasn't talking about them when he said, I came to call sinners to repentance. The rebellious are those who think he's talking about other people. The rebellious are those who want to remain in their addiction to sin. Hosea started the chapter by saying to Israel, your iniquity has caused you to stumble. He ends the chapter by saying, if you want to continue to rebel and refuse to repent, then you're going to keep on stumbling. The implication, the implication of verse 9 is that this confession and repentance is not just make, about making a one-time decision to follow Jesus. I'm good because I've 
confess my sin and I repent and I put my faith in Jesus Christ as my Savior and Lord. Amen. But this call is not about getting a ticket punched to heaven. It is about a life and a lifestyle of confession and repentance, a lifestyle of corporate confession and repentance. The ways of the Lord are right. The ways of the Lord are straight. And the righteous do what? They live by them. They base their very lives on the ways of the Lord. They live daily following his ways. And Hosea ends his message with this snapshot of two kinds of people. He's delivered to them God's word. His message has been hard to hear at several points, hard to understand, but he's had a lot to say about the ways of the Lord in terms of what he's condemned in their lifestyle. He has shown them the perils of prosperity, condemning the consumerism and materialism that dominates their minds, the adultery and the prostitution that they're satisfied to keep practicing, their injustice and lack of care for the poor, their clamoring for political position and power by deceit and treachery, their self-indulgent desire to pursue the good life by any means necessary. Hosea has said that judgment is coming because they embrace what the Lord hates and refuse to do what the Lord loves, which is to repent so that they can do justice and love mercy and walk humbly with their God. Just like Jesus does when he speaks in parables and says, he who has ears to hear let him hear. Hosea is asking you and I, do we have the wisdom that comes from God to hear my words and understand? Because the same words that cause some to respond with confession, repentance, and submission to God, receiving restoration and reconciliation and life in his ways, causes others to keep on stumbling, tripped up, because they're angered and offended over the ways of the Lord. They want their ways to be the Lord's ways instead of the other way around. Let me end with this question as one commentator asks, how do you read the words of this book? Are they life or death? Are these words simply that, words on a page to you? Words on a page that you think have no application to you, make no diagnosis about you because you don't think that you have a problem. It's those other people who are sick. If they just get right, we wouldn't have problems and the world would be a better place. I'm not an addict. <laughs> I don't need healing or restoration or are these words life for you? Are they for you a promise of healing and restoration that you joyfully embrace because you recognize that they are true. And so as your sin is exposed, you respond to your stumbling with confession and repentance. Jesus Christ calls us to wisdom. Hearing his promise of healing and turning from our addiction to sin, and he reaches down deep on the inside to heal and renew and restore addicts like you and me. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Grace.
Grace Mosaic. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org.